Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Unheard Story. Today, we're going to hear an amazing story from Matt Thiessen. He is the Director of Development for the Jesus Film Project. And you're going to hear a wild story about how God took a boy who was troubled as a youth, became a drug addict and a drug dealer, and then changed his heart and put him, led him through a series of steps to Austria, to seminary, and then ultimately to the Jesus Film Project. Joe and I have known Matt and Liz, his wife, for years now, so it was really exciting to sit down with him and hear his story from start to finish, including when he met Liz, his wife, over in England in Cape and Ray at a Bible school, and then also get to hear about current stories. He went on a recent trip to the Land of Sands in this past fall, and just what's happening over there, it will blow your mind. So join us as we jump in and hear about Matt Thiessen's story. Hi, Matt. We're so happy you're here with us today. We've gotten to know you over the last few years, and we have really enjoyed every time you share your testimony and then recently some stories that you've been sharing about your work with Jesus Film. So we wanted to have you on today. So thank you. Thank you. So Matt, um, I know from our times together that you have a pretty dramatic story about how God changed the direction of your life. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the Lord has been very kind uh, to me very gracious to me. He chased me down um, and spoke to me at a Grateful Dead concert uh, in 1993. Uh, here's the backstory on that. Uh, when I was six and a half years old, my parents uh, were separated. And right after they were separated, a man moved into my house. Uh, Chuck turned out he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. My, uh, before my parents' divorce was even finalized. Uh, my dad had moved out into a, an apartment, but he came over one day to see my sister and me, uh, still his wife, his house, his kids. And uh, I hear a knock at the, at the door. And so I go to open the door. I'm six and a half years old. And and suddenly my this man that's living with us, this Ku Klux Klansman, Chuck, he rushes past me. He opens the door and then pulls it closed and locks it. And he runs past me. And I was incredibly confused. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't even know who was at the door. And seconds later, my dad dives through the, the open bay window, dives through the screen, kind of rolls past me and runs into the living room. And I followed him and I watched my dad and Chuck uh, fight for about 15 minutes until oh, the police came. I was terrified. Wow. Um, I So my lasting impression of that uh, incident was uh, Chuck straddling my dad, holding him uh, by the head and pounding his head into the ground until he was unconscious. And then my mom, who was on the phone with the police, uh, said, that's enough, Chuck. And Chuck got off and my dad was there unconscious. Then the police came. They took my dad away. Apparently my dad uh, went home or back to his new apartment, loaded his shotgun and was going to come take care of this man who was living in his house with his wife, etc. But he passed mm -hmm. out uh, because he had a concussion. And when mm -hmm. he came to, he uh, realized, he kind of came to his senses, realized what he was doing and uh, put the shotgun down, went to the hospital. He had a cracked skull, concussion, broken ribs, and a broken uh, right arm. And uh, so he went to the hospital and got bandaged up. A few days later, 
in the line at a bank, uh, there was a man standing a few people behind my dad in line, and he saw my dad and recognized him because this man had been in ministry with my grandfather years earlier, and he recognized my dad. My dad was all beaten up and bandaged with a cast, and the guy says, what happened to you? And my dad kind of told him the story, and this guy says, you need to come uh, home with me today. And that day, uh, my dad was born again. He had grown up in a Christian home. My parents, my grandparents uh, went to Wheaton, my grandfather was classmates with Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. And when the Saints and Elliots went to South America, my grandfather, Abe Thiessen, and a couple of other guys from Wheaton went to Liberia, West Africa, and brought Christian radio to uh, West Africa, uh, uh, radio station ELWA. It was the first Christian radio broadcasting ever in Africa. And it was a great work of faith. And my dad had grown up in this had prayed to receive Christ in some way when he was young, but it, it never really took. But my dad was born again uh, this day at one of the lowest points in his life. And wow. I noticed a, a big change uh, after that. However, my mom, um, she ended up marrying Chuck. And so my dad. I only saw my dad uh, every other weekend uh, so four days a month and the rest of the time I lived with my mom and Chuck, uh, Chuck became, uh, increasingly abusive, physically abusive towards my mom, towards me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for seven years I lived under that and it was, um, a living hell. I really didn't know, um, that life was different because I was a kid when this happened. So I, I didn't really understand. I knew it was bad. I just didn't know how bad it was until now that I'm away from that. Uh, but it was a living hell. I was in terror uh, almost every day. Um, wow. And the worst part of it for me was watching Chuck chase my mom around the house or beat her or, um, you know, it was the, the abuse, watching her be abused was, was the worst part of it for me. By the time I was 13 years old, I was full of anger. Um, I had made a plan to kill Chuck. I was going to stab him in his sleep. I was trying to muster up the courage to uh, execute that plan. Um, hmm. And, uh, you know, by God's providence... Um, I don't know why, but my mom must have seen uh, how devastating uh, Chuck was on me as a 13-year-old. And when I was 13, she sent me to live with my dad, um, who had just gotten uh, remarried. So um, I moved in with my dad and his new wife. I was 13 years old, very much damaged goods. I was, uh, was uh, kind of like a wounded animal, and um, I went to church. My, my dad and my stepmom, they brought me to church, and I kind of started living this double life where um, at church I would be one person, but the rest of the time I would, I would have a, a secret life going on. And this continued, this double life continued uh, through middle school, 
through high school, although I, I, it wasn't entirely a double life. I was actually getting into trouble at school. I, I kind of checked out of all classes, stopped doing any work. By the time I got to high school, uh, a lot of trouble ensued. I began to experiment with marijuana, alcohol, but also I was living this double life. Anyway, when I was 17 years old, I went to a youth group and there was a speaker there and he spoke on the passage from Revelation 3 where Jesus says, uh, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And the speaker's intention was that everyone would stop living a double life and be hot, live hot, live, be all in uh, following Jesus. But the way I took it, was, wow, I'm, if you are living a double life, if you're lukewarm, you get the same punishment as if you're cold. I certainly am not going to be one of those passionate, hot, Bible-thumping Jesus people. So I decided uh, that night that I was going to just be cold. And that uh, turned into um, a lot more overt rebellion I was already very angry with God because I thought he'd ruined my life. Um, he'd, he'd dealt me a bad hand. Um, by the time I was about to graduate high school, I, I moved out of my house after a big fight with my dad, uh, you know, vowing never to return uh, that kind of horrific scene uh, mm-hmm. a few days before graduating high school. Wow. After I graduated from high school, I on a whim, joined the military. I joined the army. Um, I ended up shattering my femur at Fort Benning, spent eight and a half months in an army hospital. And during that time, uh, several reconstructive surgeries for my femur. And during that time, I also uh, was introduced to a lot of uh, hardcore street drugs while I was in the hospital, as well as receiving um, Uh, hospital pharmaceuticals from a drug addict who was in charge of the medicines on the orthopedic ward. So I started to develop quite a a drug addiction while I was in the hospital. And after um, almost nine months in the hospital, I was sent back from Fort Benning, Georgia to Colorado to convalesce. uh, And um, I continued with the the drug scene and, and went deeper and deeper Uh, into the drug scene. I realized that if I was enrolled in college, that a government would give me a stipend to pay for more expenses and they'd pay for my tuition, et cetera. And so I enrolled in college. I got kicked out of uh, CU Boulder for uh, shooting the marching band with BB guns from Baker Hall. Um, This was before 9-11, so it was kind of college hijinks and and more on the funny side than the the serious side. But I got kicked out of CU Boulder from that, and then we moved up to uh, Colorado State University in Fort Collins, where my drug habit just uh, increased uh, exponentially. And at this point in my life, there was never a sober moment. Uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I was loaded. Uh, I wasn't a partier. I was the guy who tries to get as numb 
and wasted as he could. Uh, I was full of pain and anger and emptiness, and I just wanted to be, as Pink Floyd's song says, comfortably numb. Mm. And so I, all day, every day, I used every drug that I could get my hands on to numb the pain inside me. At one point, uh, life was closing in on me and series of situations, and I ended up entering a 30-day inpatient drug rehab. Um, that ended up not taking uh, because, you know, I wasn't uh, interested in addressing the root issues. I just wanted to, uh, uh, to escape the, the problems that were coming my way, and so I, I used drug rehab as kind of the escape valve for these uh, issues that were closing in on me. And um, it wasn't too long until I went back to the drug scene. And uh, then I was, I had been full on before. Now I was even more full on into the drug scene with reckless abandon. That, this lasted for several years, actually. And um, during that time, I was totally estranged from all family. All of my friends became estranged. The only people I spent time with were hardcore drug users like myself. How old were you at that point? So I'm, I'm 20 years old at this point, uh, out of drug rehab, back hardcore into the drug scene. And um, I really, I'd been suicidal several times. I, the pain in my life uh, in my heart was so great that death would have been a sweet release mm. from for me. I, I would have welcomed death. So my life was really out of control, 24-7, uh, hardcore drug use, uh, never a sober moment. And that, and this, that went on for several years. In May of 1993, I just turned 22 years old, and I went out to these Grateful Dead concerts in uh, Las Vegas in May of 93. I wasn't a deadhead, but uh, I heard there were going to be 250,000 people out there, uh, lots of drugs, and so I said, that's, that's where I'm going to go, and I, I made my way out to Vegas. Okay. Well, at the end of the first show on the first day, they played the final encore song that the dead played was I fought the law and the law won. It's an old country Western song. Yeah. And I'm down in front of the stage. I'm probably about 30 feet from the center, uh, from the front of the stage, right in the center. And they're playing, I fought the law and the law won. And suddenly um, I sense God's presence. And you have to understand, I, wanted nothing to do with God. I didn't interact with God. The only interaction I had with God in the last years leading up to that was to raise my middle finger to the sky and tell God how angry I was at him uh, and that I hated him, uh, etc. So that was my relationship with God. That was my interaction with God up until this point. Well, here I am. The, the Grateful Dead is playing, I fought the law and the law won. And suddenly I sense God's presence. And then God speaks to me. 
wow. in a way that he doesn't typically speak to me. And he says, Matt, turn around. And so I turn around and I look and there's, you know, 50,000 people going crazy in the UNLV bowl going crazy on drugs and dancing to the music. And God says to me, Matt, this is the camp you're in. You're not one of mine. And I don't know why he said that to me because I knew that. I knew I wasn't his. I didn't pretend to be his. I didn't think I was his. But apparently he wanted to impress that on my heart. And then the next thing God says to me, as the band is playing, I fought the law and the law won. God says to me, Matt, you're fighting my law and you know I'm going to win. And suddenly I'm under this heavy duty conviction. And right at that moment, a man runs out in front of me. I'm 30 feet away from the stage. A man runs out with a big black floppy book in his hand. And I could tell it's a Bible. I'm close enough. And he, he throws it up on the stage and he's yelling something. I'm not sure what he was yelling. Uh, one of the band members, Bob Weir, comes and he kicks the Bible off the stage as they play I Fought the Law and the Law won. And the wow. security guards come and they wrap this guy up and it takes four guys to carry him out. They carry him out kind of horizontally. But as he's being carried out, he manages to get one hand raised up with his finger pointed up to the sky. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, God impressed on my heart that he had orchestrated this event to get my attention and that it was an answer to my grandmother's prayers. And so I'm under this heavy-duty conviction, thought to myself, okay, well, my life's got to change. But I still had several days in Las Vegas, and I wasn't ready to change at that point. So I just numbed my way through the, the rest of the time in Vegas. When I returned from Vegas back to Fort Collins, uh, Colorado, I met one of my friends at a coffee shop. He's a fellow hardcore drug user. And I told him what happened to me in Vegas. And his response was, wow, that's heavy, man. (laughs) And um, then he said, let me give you the name of my parents' church and their pastor down in Denver. Now, I I didn't even know this guy had parents, much less that (laughs) that there was a church. I mean, we didn't interact like that. We were just drug users together. Yeah. So I was really, it was out of the blue that he gave me the name of his parents' church and, and pastor. So I took the, the information he gave me and I put it actually in the, the pouch that I carried my drugs in and I didn't think about it anymore. Well, fast forward a couple of months. So that, that conversation happened in May. Uh, fast forward a couple of months to July and I was down in Denver uh, the guy that I joined the army with originally and who had fought in the, the first Gulf War, he was out of the army living in Denver. I went down to see him, was crashing mm. on his couch. And uh, life was spiraling out of control. It had been, but it was, it was, it was really spiraling out of control, uh, I guess. And um, I was trying to get this cocaine deal to go through. I needed drugs, I needed money, and this this thing wasn't coming through, and there were these other events in my life that were closing in on me, and I was all alone on a Saturday night, July 31st, 1993, and 
I was suicidal. I didn't want to live. I wanted to be free from the pain. Uh, and death would have been welcome. Uh, but I knew that if I committed suicide, my next moment, I'd wake up in hell. Mm. And that that's the only reason I, I didn't uh, off myself. There I am on this Saturday night all by myself, suicidal, uh, but but not wanting to go to hell. And in a moment of desperation, I just prayed a prayer out loud and I said, okay, God, if you're there, and it was like dot, dot, dot. It was just kind of one of those prayers. And then I remembered the name of the church and the pastor that this guy had given me uh, up in Fort Collins that he'd given me. I, I pulled the piece of paper out, had the name of the church on it. I looked it up in the yellow pages back when we had yellow pages. And uh, it turned out that this church was only a mile away from the apartment that I was wow. in. And so it was Saturday night. I said, okay, God, if I wake up early enough tomorrow, I'll go to this church. So I, I made my way to this church. I sat through the sermon. I was bored out of my mind. Um, I went up to the pastor after the sermon and I said to him, look, apparently, you know, my friend, you know, his parents, I need your help. I need you to help me get my life cleaned up. And this Mm -hmm. pastor looks at me and he points at me and says, no, what you need is you need to get your life right with Jesus Christ. And I turned to go and I said, I'm not interested in that. And he grabbed me by the shoulder, like with a claw, grabbed me (laughs) by the shoulder. And he said, let me pray for you. He's holding, he's just gripping me. So I let him pray for me. And then he said, promise me you'll come back to the six o'clock service tonight. And wow. I, I, I didn't care about promises. I just wanted this guy to let me go. So I said, okay, I will. And I left. Well, I couldn't shake it that whole day. And um, I ended up making my way back to that church service. I got there late, got there at 630, kind of crept in the back door, sat in the very last pew in the corner of the church. There's probably 200 people at this Sunday night service, and, and I'm in the back. There was a French-speaking missionary and an English interpreter. So it was French, English, French, English, French. And I was, again, bored out of my mind. I am like, what am I doing here? I should get out of here. But for whatever reason, I stayed. At the end of the service, the pastor uh, said, I'd like the elders to come up and pray for these two missionaries. And so, you know, a dozen guys come up and they lay hands on these two missionaries. Well, about a minute later, the pastor gets up behind the pulpit again, and he says, and Matt, I'd like you to come up here. Now, I was shocked. I I was like, did I just hear that? (laughs) And I didn't even know that this pastor had seen me come into the church. I hadn't made eye contact with him. I didn't even know he'd seen me come into the church. But since then, my wife has pointed out that uh, when a guy with long hair and black leather comes into the uh, <laughs> Sunday night service, the pastor probably notices. So anyway, this guy, I, I was frozen. And 
there was a pregnant pause and and then the pastor leaning over the pulpit and pointing in my direction says, yeah, you, Matt, come up here. <laughs> now I have 200 heads turned around looking at me. And I felt a lot of pressure to do something. So I stood up and the door was right there on my right. And I thought, I should just get out of here. But for whatever reason, I took a left and I started to walk down the aisle towards the front. And about halfway down the aisle, I had a moment of like total clarity of my life. Hmm. Um, and again, for a second time, God spoke to me like he had in Las Vegas, except for this time he said, Matt, if you don't turn to me now, you're never going to have another chance. Hmm. And in this moment of total clarity, I realized I was out of options. And I burst into tears. I got down on my knees at the front of this church. People are laying hands on me and praying for me. I have no idea what was going on around me. But in that space between me and God, I said, okay, God, I'm going to follow you no matter what the personal cost. Wow. And with that prayer, that night, I was born again. That was August 1st, 1993. Wow, uh, that night, I went back to my dad's house where I hadn't been in years. And it was like the prodigal son come home. And um, there were lots of tears. And uh, um, it went into the wee hours of the morning. About two in the morning, uh, my dad said to me, well would you like to go to Bible school? And I said, well, I, if that's what you do next, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> and so I ended up uh, five weeks later, I was, I found myself in Germany at Bodenseehof, one of the torture bearer Bible schools, um, mostly with a lot of 18 year old gap year Christian kids. And then there was me and I was, pretty rough. And God had also placed one other guy there with me and me for him, a guy who had been in the French Foreign Legion for six years and had become a believer uh, after um, all his men were killed on a, a bridge uh, explosion. And he woke up on a hospital ship and was led to Christ. But anyway, the, wow. God had put this French Foreign Legionnaire and me together at this Bible school, both new Christians, both pretty rough, but there for each other. And um, I spent the majority of the that seven month uh, session in Germany at that at Bodenseehof. I spent the majority of that time just devouring God's word out by myself walking through the apple orchards and crying and praying and um, healing. And then after the school in Germany, I went to a sister school, uh, a torchbearer school in Austria, Tauernhof. And that's where I met Liz, uh, my wife. She had been, oh. while I was in Germany, she was at Capernray, the torchbearer school in England. And she had come to the sister school in Austria for the spring session. So that's where I met Liz. We were put on the same wow. outreach team together. I was the leader of the outreach team because I was 
so zealous to evangelize every living creature that uh, it was a natural fit for me to be the leader of an outreach team. A young girl in one of the gymnasiums had had come to faith and and she wanted me to meet with her. I didn't feel comfortable just meeting alone. So I asked Liz to join me. And so Liz and I discipled this young girl. And one day this Mm. girl didn't show up and it was just Liz and me. And so we had coffee together and started to talk. And there was um, about three days before the spring session in Austria ended, uh, I realized that Liz was going to go back to Seattle. I was actually going to stay in Europe for another session, but she was going to go back to Seattle and and I would never see her again. And Mm -hmm. in that moment, I realized I want to marry this girl. And so I called my dad and I said, dad, I found her. And he said, found who? And I said, I found the girl I'm going to marry. And he didn't know, he thought maybe she was an Austrian girl. I didn't go into a lot of detail, but, um, I, at that point I knew I was going to marry Liz. And, uh, the next day we had a three hour long, uh, conversation in a coffee shop after which I thought we were engaged. I didn't realize that there's a process and a ring and, you know, all that asking the parents. But uh, anyway, I thought we were engaged, but I was planning on marrying her. She thought I was being hyperbolic. Uh, I wasn't. Um, but anyway, um, after I completed the, the summer mountaineering course in Austria, I moved to Seattle where Liz was and, um, I, it took me a while to win her parents' hearts over, um, and finally they uh, saw that, in fact, I was a changed person, and uh, they allowed Liz and me to get married, and we got wow. married in December of 1995. I was 24, she was 20, and uh, yeah, the Lord cool. really hooked me up. Yeah. yeah. So Matt, I know, I know after that you decided that you needed to continue your Bible training and went to seminary. Yes. Well, so after Bible school, I actually, uh, Liz and I graduated from Colorado Christian University uh, for our undergrad. And uh, then I already knew I was going to go to seminary. I ended up going to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I had a plan that I was going to become a theologian. Um, I had the privilege of serving as Wayne Grudem's personal assistant while he was, uh, during the year that he was uh, the general editor and finalizing the English Standard Version of the Bible. I worked in his home office in his basement with him. And that, that, was, that was my plan, to go on and get a PhD and become a theologian like Wayne Grudem. And uh, God had a different plan, and through a series of events and humbling me. Uh, He reoriented me. And uh, we ended up joining staff with Campus Crusade and spent 13 years in the campus ministry uh, discipling college students. And it was a fantastic time. That's amazing. So what, what are you doing now for the Jesus film? And how did you get from campus ministry to where you are now? Yeah. So when I was in campus ministry, of course, I knew about the Jesus Film Project, but I didn't know that much about it. 
I had no idea that development was even a thing. I didn't even know that the job I currently have was a job. And they were praying for me. And after I became a believer, after we'd been in campus ministry for 13 years, Mike and Brenda Baller called me and Mike pitched to me the job description of the development director for Jesus Film Project. He pitched it to me in like 90 seconds and said, are you interested? And I said, Mike, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't even know what this job <laughs> is. How, how could I know if I'm interested? And he said, well, if, you, if, if I set up a meeting, would you take it? And I said, of course, I'd, I'd take any meeting. So he set up a meeting with me with the new executive director, uh, Eric Schenkel. Um, Eric, I learned that development meant uh, two things. It meant fund development, but it also meant development of our ministry partners, that they would grow in their generosity, that they would grow in their stewardship, that they would grow in their participation in the fulfilling of the Great Commission. So it's it's fund development, but it's also the development of uh, the, the ministry partners. So that's what I learned development was. I took this meeting with Eric Schenkel, and just the morning before I took the meeting with him, I watched online his story about being beaten mm. with hatchets. Mm. And then he and his wife, yeah. uh, his wife, Elizabeth, left for dead and then evacuated and reconstructive surgeries. Eric returned a month later. The whole family returned 10 months later. And yeah. I, I watched this story online about them just as just before going to meet him for coffee and it changed everything for me i was like wow i am going to be in the presence of someone who bears the marks of christ mm -hmm. in his body and i i felt like incredibly honored like i should take my shoes off in in the presence of this uh saint anyway liz and i met with eric schenkel the executive director of jesus film project and tom minor the CEO, the COO, and it was a great meeting. They liked us. We liked them. And after the meeting, Liz and I went away and said, hey, those are great people, but we don't know anything about development, and we're pretty young and inexperienced for, for this role. Apparently, they went away, and they said, hey, that's a great meeting. Like that couple, but they don't know anything about development. They're pretty inexperienced and, and don't really know anything about this role. So we, we both were honoring Mike and Brenda Baller by taking the meeting, but we both left with the, the same idea that it, it probably wasn't a good fit. But um, as Eric and Tom prayed about it, um, the Lord put it on their hearts. The Lord put it on Eric's heart to approach us and uh, ask us if we would consider taking this role. Yeah. It was a process for us um, to bring it before the Lord, uh, to understand what the job was, what it entailed. Um, even then, I really didn't understand what the job was. What I learned was no one else wanted to take this job, so they were scraping the bottom of the barrel. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think so. Well, <laughs> well, we know um, that's not true. Okay, well, sucker born every minute, sort of a thing, I think. But <laughs> but Eric always had did say, you know, the best jobs are 
the ones that nobody else wants. And um, anyway, when we came into this role, when I came into this role, uh, I knew nothing. I was around people who had been doing this for 25 years. And um, here I am supposed to lead them. I mm. leaned heavily upon the verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 41.10. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I had that as my screensaver on my phone. And I had to look at it sometimes uh, 10 times a minute. Sometimes it was only 10 times a day. But uh, I had to remember that God had called me here and that even though I didn't know what I was doing, he had a plan and he had a purpose. So Matt, what's your current role in the development department? Yeah, so currently I serve as the director of development. I know that you've been able to, in your role, do some traveling um, internationally and experience some amazing things about how the Jesus film is being used internationally. Can you give us a maybe a story about a recent experience you've had? Yes, that's one of the best parts of my job uh, is occasionally I get to get out to the field and see what God is doing. Recently, I was in a country in what I'll call the land of the sand, um, somewhere across that swath of the Middle East. And I met with 12 men from eight different countries. And they're part of this underground movement. And uh, of these 12 men, eight of them were former jihadis. One of them uh, had just as recently as four months been on the front lines uh, fighting as a jihadi, killing people um, in a country that is in the news a lot. And uh, he told us his story. And he had grown up in a madras and been desensitized from youth towards killing. He'd been uh, indoctrinated as a jihadi, and he'd killed lots of people. He was a, a commander uh, for this terrorist group in this particular area. And he killed lots of people. All the people around him were, were had killed lots of people. And he said, though, that in July of last year, uh, his heart became troubled. And he was surprised that his heart was troubled. But his heart became troubled because of the 16 children that he'd killed. And he was so surprised by it because for he and his friends, his fellow jihadis, they'd killed lots of people and it was a sport. They, he said they would laugh about it when they would kill children. And in fact, they would actually target children because they knew it would hurt the parents more. So they, they especially tried to target wow. the children. But he said that um, his heart became uneasy within him because of these 16 children that he killed. And he said it, he became so unsettled that he had to leave the front lines of this country. And he went back to his home country in North Africa. And uh, he said that by accident, the second day after he returned home, he learned that there was a film showing in the neighboring village. Now, this guy's like an ISIS commander kind of a big fish in a small pond. His village is only 450 people, similar size to the village next door. He ends up going over to the village next door where they're showing this film, which is, of course, the Jesus film. It's a two-hour 
film, and he said it took five hours to get through the film because he kept stopping the film and asking wow. questions. What does this mean? What's going on here? He said it took five mm. hours to get through the film. And his words were that, that during this film, he'd never heard this message of peace. And the devils in his heart grew quiet and allowed him to understand. And he became a follower of Jesus that night. Well, it's probably about two in the morning by the time that this five-hour viewing ends. He had the film team come back to his village. He woke up his family at two in the morning, and he had them watch the Jesus film. And all of them became followers of Jesus. Ten people became followers of Jesus. The next day, or later that day, I guess, he had the film shown in his entire village. And he stood up and said, I'm a follower of Jesus now, and you all should become followers of Jesus. And all 450 people in this village became followers of Jesus. This happened in July. That's amazing. Of, uh, wow. 2019. Uh, I was there in that's November so of 2019. And so that's four months later. And in that four months, he said he had led out 75 of his former jihadi fighter uh, friends out of that, out of fighting jihad, they'd all become followers of Jesus, and each of them was leading a house church, and together they'd reached a hundred villages, and they had plans to to reach everyone everywhere. He said that he and his former jihadi friends knew of this group's plans for destruction in forty other countries. And they wanted to reach those countries with the gospel before this group could bring uh, death and destruction. He's obviously now a a hunted man, uh, but he's fearless and just wants everyone to have the same opportunity that he had to hear this message of peace. And at the end of telling his story, he said something that I'll never forget. He really said it towards God, but, but kind of we were there, so it was in our presence. But he said, when I was young, where were the followers of Jesus? Why didn't anyone come and tell me about this message of peace? Hmm. And it was, a, it was a question he was kind of posing towards God. But, of course, it just landed on my heart. And I said, well, yeah, there's so many people like this that have never had an opportunity to hear this message of peace, to hear that Jesus loves them and have the opportunity to uh, experience a relationship with God. So this guy, brand new believer, he knows everything you could ever want to know about evangelism, missiology. He's one of my heroes now, and I, I want to be like him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I met uh, a dozen guys like this. Each of them had harrowing stories of, of uh, torture and mm-hmm. uh, family members killed, and yet they were continuing to fearlessly go forward uh, to bring the gospel to the entire land of sand. Recently, Matt, you said one of them you've heard recently. Yeah, just recently. So probably about three weeks ago, one of them, one of these guys was captured uh, and he was um, not given any food for seven days. He was beaten severely. He had broken ribs and damaged kidneys. He didn't know if he was going to live or die, but they ended up uh, letting him go. And 
my understanding is he's safe and, and recovering from his injuries, but it doesn't slow these folks down at all. Uh, they're all the more um, uh, zealous to bring the gospel, even to those very people who captured them. So in my role as director of development, the what our departments do is we get to connect the people whom God has entrusted with resources, the, the ministry partners that are stewarding God's resources. We get to connect them with all of the opportunities on the field. So it's a, a twofold ministry. Our department, the development department, gets to cultivate relationships and minister to uh, these ministry partners, helping them overcome the gravitational pull of money on their souls. We get to help free them from that as they become as rich towards God as he is towards us. That's one part of the work in ministry of development. And then the other part is uh, allocating all of those resources given to these uh, partners and these projects out on the field where hundreds of millions are reached every year uh, with the gospel and uh, people are coming to Christ. It's, it's quite, a, quite a ministry to, to be able to be the part of connecting the hoses between those who are entrusted with God's resources and then being able to connect the hose to all of the opportunities on the field. So that's what the development department does. We connect the hoses between uh, the people that God's entrusted with resources to all of the opportunities on the field. So Matt, when you talk about the word developing, I also think of how you have developed so many hearts towards Christ's heart and just really have trained people to just listen and see what God wants for us. And in turn, you know, you're doing developing for Jesus film with funding. And then you're also really excited about developing people's hearts towards Christ. What do you think about that? Our department exists so that we are able to fund all of the work of Jesus film project throughout the world. But our primary objective, development's primary objective, is seeing our ministry partners grow in their faith and be all in with God, whatever that looks like for them. That they would be on this journey of generosity, that they would be growing in their faith, growing in their likeness to Jesus. And it turns out that when and it turns out that when a person is growing in their faith and becoming more all-in towards God, becoming a more wholehearted, all-in follower of Jesus, it turns out that their checkbook follows. But that's not our primary goal. Our primary goal is to see uh, our min- the hearts of our ministry partners transformed uh, into the likeness of Jesus. Let me ask you one follow-up question because it really struck me early on when you were talking about, you know, the lie about how if you are lukewarm, God's going to spit you out of his mouth. And because of that, you decided, well, if I'm a, if I'm a lukewarm Christian or if I'm a cold Christian, there's really, really no difference and I'm not going to be a hot Christian. So I might as well just reject the whole thing. Now, knowing what you know now, what would you tell your young self then? Oh, goodness. <laughs> what would I tell my young self then if only I had that opportunity? 
Um, I take myself by the specific. Let me be more specific. There might be people who are believing something similar out there that are listening right now. For example, somebody might say, well, um, you know, might have feelings of guilt or, or shame because of they, they might be thinking the same thing that if they're lukewarm, that, um, that God is not honoring them. God does not, um, care about them. But what would you say to that person? Yeah. Jesus said that, uh, he came that we might have abundant life and the lukewarm life is just kind of a blah life. But the life of following Jesus wholeheartedly is life. It's like mm-hmm. that. It's like life uh, electrified. It's like life plugged in. And it is abundant and it is rich. And whatever uh, short-term sacrifices, whatever delayed gratification, whatever you think you'll be missing out on, you experience such whatever you think you'll be missing out on you will experience so much more abundance and richness of life as you become more and more all in with jesus he says if you try to hold on to your life you'll lose it but if you give your life for him his sake and the gospel you'll find it and you'll find the fullness of life love it that's Mike, amazing. Mic drop. Mic right drop. there, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Well, thanks, Matt. Well, it's my privilege to share the story of what God's done in my life. He's been incredibly kind and gracious to me. He chased me down. Uh, he pursued me even when I was his enemy. And he has continued to sustain me uh, through 20 six years now. Who would have thought that a guy who was a one-time drug addict and drug dealer would now be part of uh, creating global evangelism strategy and working with Jesus Film Project. This only by the grace of God and all glory to him. I am so thankful for his kindness to me. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us today. I really enjoyed hearing your story, the entirety of it. That was so encouraging and really appreciate your time today. And Matt, we really appreciate hearing your heart just about what development is, your ideas about um, generosity and how generosity and the gospel are tied together intricately. So we just really appreciate your time and thanks for being with us. Thank you, guys.